If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I've had a lot of people comment on uh, your angry delivery guy story from a previous episode. I have to update you. I saw him again. What? Yeah. Really? So Did he recognize you? No, oh. but I recognized him. And I was just getting ready to leave the building and he was coming in and he said, can I get to building two from here? And I said, no, you have to go into building two. There's no like connecting causeway from one to two. And he was like, well, there's no code. How do I get into building two if there's no code <laughs> box? And I was like, I don't know. And he was like, I don't know how people expect me to. And I was like, oh, no, no, good luck. Bye. Okay. <laughs> Wow. You need to consider different career options, sir. Yeah, or at least anger management courses. <laughs> That's an option. Too. You should have said to him, oh, that reminds me, I need to order some takeout. And uh, do they have a bring it to my house and put it in my mouth option now? <laughs> I don't want to have to get off my sofa. Yeah. I just hope that he finds a place where he enjoys himself and feels valued. That is very sweet. Somehow I doubt it. Probably not without a lot of introspection. Anyway, over hundreds of thousands of years, human beings have evolved many skills and attributes that have helped move the human race forward. From learning to walk upright. Toothbrushes. Toothbrushes, language development, complex social structure. Many traits and skills that we have developed, we kind of take for granted. But yet, we still use them and uh, they're a direct unbroken thread back hundreds of millennia to our earliest ancestors. Now, I've touched on an example before with Carl Sagan from his book, uh, Dragons of Eden, which is uh, a book about the evolution of human consciousness, which is amazing. In it, he talks about one of our most ancient mammalian ancestors, something that's akin to a tree shrew. Uh, they lived underground. They quickly learned that when they heard hissing reptiles thundering around above them, they were much better off if they stayed quiet. Mm. And consequently, they developed a behavior that kept them safe. When they heard the hissing reptile, they kept quiet. And then they took it another step. 
They learn to impersonate the hissing reptile to keep their children quiet. And that's something that we do to this day. When we want our children, or anybody for that matter, to, uh, to be quiet, how do we convey that non-verbally? What do we do? Shut the f*** up! You're one angry, foul-mouthed tree shrew. <laughs> the proper answer, of course, would be, shh, we sound, we impersonate a hissing reptile, still to this day. Early on in our evolution as people, we noticed that spontaneous behavior like laughter had positive effects. It made people feel comfortable around you. It made people trust you. That maybe when our ancient ancestors started doing it, it had a completely different purpose than what we use it for today. A good example of that is laughter. How did laughter evolve? Where did it come from? The most popular theory is that uh, between two and four million years ago, our early primitive primate ancestors were play fighting. You know, like you see chimpanzees do, and they kind of roll around and slap each other. Mm -hmm. And while they do that, there's a breathy panting that's emitted during these playful sessions. And they speculate that's, yeah, that's the way it was with our earliest ancestors. Sure. And they believe it probably appeared before language was even developed. Sure. This breathy panting evolved into a sort of laughter that was a signal that things at this moment were fine that there was no danger. It was a good time, good as any, to socialize and play and explore. It triggers something inside us that says, this is an opportunity to learn. This is a non-serious novelty. It promotes play and exploration of emotional and social implications of this novelty. So what purpose does laughter have today? And did it evolve for a different purpose over time? Do we laugh for the same reasons? that our ancestors, our ancient ancestors did. I think you did this story. The story about uh, the school in a small village, I think Tanzania, where 95 out of 100 pupils or something like that came down with what was called laughing disease. Yeah. It was like an epidemic. These students started laughing uncontrollably and they, they couldn't get them to stop. They had to shut the school down. And when the students went home, it spread from person to person and then school to school and then village to village. And they never did really find a definitive explanation for what happened other than mass hysteria. But this epidemic lasted for several months and affected about a thousand people. Wow. They've done a new study on this and uh, they tracked down some of the teachers that were involved, the students, as well as medical experts who treated them at the time. A lot of people who came in contact with those who were afflicted with this laughing disease, they discovered that it really didn't have, any, have anything to do with, with humor. They found that this school was a very strict religious boarding school. It was known for its strict rules and uncomfortable desks and chairs that were designed to promote good posture. Mm -hmm. And the dormitories that they stayed in were windowless. In other schools where the laughing disease sprang up, very similar conditions, as well as poor food quality and extreme overcrowding. So it's believed, this study concluded, that the laughter, in this case, was a form of complaint. They had no alternative form of expression. That's really fascinating. It wasn't an expression of the recognition of humor. There was a more recent study that showed that we use laughter today for many different reasons, and humor is not the leading cause. A neuroscientist and psychology professor from the University of Maryland, a guy named 
Robert Provine, wrote a book called Laughter, a scientific investigation. He conducted what he called uh, sidewalk neuroscience. I love that. Essentially, he made recordings of real-world laughter, whether it was in a restaurant or a cocktail party or a bar. Uh, he ultimately recorded more than 1,000, quote, laugh episodes. His student volunteers then created a laugh log, if you will, which uh, described the circumstances surrounding each laugh session that was recorded. And then they put it behind an episode of Seinfeld. There's a whole science behind soundtracks or, or laugh tracks in, in old sitcoms that kind of goes hand in hand with some of the things that, uh, that they're talking about here. He was surprised by the results. Less than 20% of all real-world laughter were in response to things that were either funny or even remotely funny. What was far more common was a person chuckling at simple statements such as, okay, I'm out of here, and then they'd kind of chuckle, or, oh, I understand now, or, hey, here comes Frank, and then they would chuckle. <laughs> it was also noted that the person who made the statement that provoked the laughter was 46% more likely to, to be the one chuckling than the person that was listening. Yeah, I know someone very much like that. <laughs> yeah, me. Um, <laughs> I, I saw myself in this study. Yeah? Uh, I never would have before you started pointing out that I do this. I, I don't point it out. I have pointed it out. But the way you said it just now makes it sound like I'm constantly pointing it out. But that's not, I mean, I don't point it out a lot. Pointed it out enough so that I noticed it. <laughs> um, they also noted in the study that none of the laughter erupted uncontrollably or unexpectedly. In fact, out of 1,200 laugh episodes, only eight did. 99.9% of the time, laughter happened in conversation in neat natural breaks, almost as if it's being used as punctuation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've seen a lot of uh, TikToks. Uh, I'm on autism TikTok, by the way. Ah. And I've seen a lot about how uh, a lot of neurotypical conversation involves weird quirks that we tend to see as natural mm. and those who are autistic or on the spectrum in in some way don't understand why that's quote unquote normal or yeah, why yeah. that is the way that people do things another example is like hey how you doing great okay and then moving on you know why do you ask questions that you don't actually want the answers to mm, why mm. ask how someone's doing if you don't really care yeah you know that yeah. kind of thing and laughter is another great example that comes up a lot people don't understand why neurotypicals are laughing all the time i think also it's an attempt to fill potential empty space you finish a statement and on some level, perhaps you don't want there to be a long pause for the next person to, to, to respond. Mm -hmm. So you fill it with laughter. I know a lot of people, one in particular, not you, a former person I worked with, who would end every sentence with, so giving you a chance to respond and right. filling up that, that space in between. You also worked with someone who would say... Hacha, or what was the thing that they used to say? Bahua. Bahua. <laughs> <laughs> 
And he would say it, he would say Bahua, but then he would change the accent on the syllable. So occasionally it would be Bahua. I don't know. Anyway, they also learned in this study that people are 30 times more likely to laugh when they're with other people than when they're by themselves. Except for Eddie, our former neighbor who watched King of the Hill until three in the morning and laughed extremely loud by himself. I love it. So why did laughter evolve from playtime vocaliz- vocalizations to an expression of joy? Why is it that we love to make other people laugh to this day? If we see something funny, we can't wait to share it with somebody. It's true. Why can laughter at the same time resemble a quickly spreading disease? <laughs> and today, why is it used almost as punctuation in conversation. Early on in our evolution, as people developed behaviorally, it was noticed that spontaneous behavior like laughter had positive effects in the community. It made people feel comfortable around you. They felt safe, it made people trust you. And so early on, these early primate ancestors of ours learned to mimic that panting playtime sound Pretty much to manipulate people. Or, I mean, to create that sense of safety. Yes. Almost. Yep. Like um, like chewing does. Yes, which is why baseball players used to chew tobacco and now bubble gum because it tells your brain there's nothing to be afraid of. Right. You're eating. You're, you're safe. Right, right. They learned how to imitate this, but they didn't get it quite, quite right. Quite white? Quite white. And we still don't today. When we're faking a smile, when we're just being polite, the muscles in our eyes don't move. You and I call it dead eyes. Mm. (laughs) And that's why you often hear that uh, a, a genuine smile comes from the eyes. But this mimicking was close enough. Mimicked laughter is in fact a way to manipulate other people. And sometimes it's good manipulation. Like, I just want you to be comfortable. And that can be beneficial to everybody, but sometimes it's also used Selfishly, laughter can occur in many different situations, everything from aggressiveness Mm. to nervousness. Mm. It functions as a signal to appease or to manipulate, even to subvert. I know when I was at my Grammy's funeral, I couldn't stop chuckling to myself and I had to like really keep myself quiet because I couldn't stop laughing. I was so uncomfortable. And the more I laughed, the more uncomfortable I (laughs) became. But Mm -hmm. then it became like a vicious cycle. Stifled laughter Mm -hmm. is the funniest thing. It's awful. So laughter came from early primates panting and vocalizing while play fighting and enjoying themselves. It's commonly uh, thought of as a response to humor, but it's so much more. I enjoy humor. I've heard that about you. It it really is a part of who we are as social creatures. It expresses something that that can't be said. And it can say a lot of things. Mm. You can say, hey, we're having a great time. Or it could be saying, hey, there's something very, very wrong. Right. My information came from a really great article in Slate magazine, Wikipedia, Robert Provine's book, Laughter, A Scientific Investigation, and Psychology Today. That was really fascinating. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. 
Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our Aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the Aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer and now that thing in the middle edward palmer from boston invented the stocks the stocks were a form of public humiliation and punishment a wooden device that locked criminals in a seated or standing position people then were allowed to throw rotten vegetables at them Who was the first person ever to be put in the stocks? Edward Palmer. His crime? Charging too much for building stocks. Hey, Cat and Jethro, Laura writes, after listening to Box 507 and the mention of the flashlight eye, I had to share this. First, years ago, I remember seeing a man on TV who had lost an eye and would put a flashlight in his mouth for entertainment at parties so his eye socket would light up. (laughs) (laughs) He was locally known as the human jack-o'-lantern. But even more fascinating is the story of this man, 
filmmaker Rob Spence, who lost an eye and replaced it with a camera. He talks about how much more comfortable people are talking without being anxious about big cameras recording. I've included a link to his story. While not a true cyborg, I find it fascinating. Hope you do too. Flying my freak flag in Ohio. Laura. So much fun. We got a message from Rose. I read box 507 as being titled Fleshlights for Eyeballs. <laughs> and I've been laughing alone for like five minutes. <laughs> and Jen wrote us one morning I was in the shower and thought of how I had the same keychain for over 20 years. Oh, yes. Shower thoughts. <laughs> it's an Our Lady Peace keychain that I bought in 1999 when they were on tour. Oh, my I then remembered how the very first time I saw them live and they were opening for Third Eye Blind at Harbor Lights in Boston. And then there was a third band, maybe Eve Six, I'm not sure. Oh my God. Or was I just filling in another band that I'd seen a few times? Oh well, I guess I'll never know. Fast forward a couple hours later, I'm at work listening to an episode when Jethro shares that Cat had seen Third Eye Blind, to which Cat promptly protested, I was only there to see Eve Six. So thanks, Cat. You confirmed it for Jen, apparently. Yes. We probably went to the same tour. Sounds like it. You saw them in Portland, Maine. This was Boston. Yeah. So yeah, probably the same tour. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Sometimes these liners just aren't very creative. Like that one just now. This is the Box of Oddities. All right, sweet pants, what do you got for me? Absolutely, unquestionably, the greatest pirate who ever lived. I love a good swashbuckling tale. 
Laura Duncombe, author of Pirate Women, The Princesses, Prostitutes, and Privateers Who Ruled the Seven Seas, speaking of Zhen Yisao, known as Ching Shi. She pirated longer, made more money, she surrendered on her own free will, got to keep her money, and live out the rest of her life in freedom, as opposed to being cornered and murdered by the government, like Blackbeard was. Yeah, that didn't end well for him. No. But when you think of the greatest pirates that ever lived, is your first thought Ching Shi? No. No. No, no. Well, it should be. Zheng Yi Sao grew up in poverty, born around 1775 in Xingyi, Guangdong. She may have been a Tonka, also known as Boat People, an ethnic group in southern China. She was a sex worker on a floating brothel. And it's said that she became very well known in the area due to her wit, her beauty, and her intelligence. This attracted several high-profile customers. And in 1801, Zheng Yi, a well-known pirate who fought as a privateer for the Vietnamese Tae Son dynasty, asked for her hand in marriage. Jing Ye Sao agreed, but only if he granted her 50% of his earnings and partial control of his pirate fleet. He agreed, <laughs> and they were married. Wow. She was smart. She had a business head about her. Absolutely. Together, they created a pirate power couple. <laughs> Jing Ye Sao was not a background wife. Together, they created a pirate alliance. In 1804-1805, they had established a confederation of six pirate leaders, each commanding a fleet and all under the supreme command of this pirate power couple, the Beyonce and Jay-Z of the high seas, if you will. The confederation consisted of six fleets known by the color of their flags, red, black, blue, white, yellow, and purple. Zheng Yi commanded the biggest fleet in the confederation, the Red Flag Fleet. Ching Shi created rules and harsh penalties for those in her fleet who did not follow them. These included instant execution for those who refused to follow orders. Wow. No three strikes and you're out. Nope. Execution for marital infidelity. <laughs> okay. And execution for extramarital sex. According to History Hit, female captives were also treated more respectfully, and the weak or unattractive women or pregnant women were freed as soon as possible, while they kept the attractive ones to sell later, um, or <laughs> they could choose to marry a pirate, but it had to be consensual. Well, that's interesting. The pirating pair also greatly valued and rewarded loyalty. And because of this, the two built a force to around 600 ships. What? Yeah. 600 ships? This operation was going really well. Holy crap. Yeah. And the two adopted Chung Po, a local fisherman who was in his early 20s as their son. Now, at the time, adoption didn't have to be like, we'd like to have a baby, and so we're going to get one. And in this case, it might be like, we want this person to be a relation to us. In the event that something happens, then they will be our heir, so on and so forth. Doesn't it also create a motive for somebody to kill you? It might. Mm, although pirates generally are trustworthy folk. That's true. Plus, there were rumors that one or both of the couple were in a relationship with this man. Oh, okay. So maybe a little pirate three-way action. Right. Mm. A menage R. <laughs> Yep. Something like that. I yep. enjoy humor. I, I was concerned about laughing because I thought you might think it was just punctuation, but I was recognizing 
the fact that you enjoy humor. <laughs> the family would lead attacks on ships and capture gold and silver and silk and spices, Chinese porcelain, tea and cotton, and then they'd resell it on the mainland. And sometimes while they were on the mainland reselling these things, they'd plunder the mainland. It was going great. And then in November of 1807, Zheng Yi died. According to Atlas Obscura, not much is known about how he passed away. Some accounts indicate that he was killed at sea by a tsunami, while others think that he was murdered in Vietnam. But Cheng Shi, the name that this female pirate is also known by, translates literally to Cheng's widow. So hmm. she's known by her name, but also by the name Cheng's widow. Zheng Yi Sao, which we will continue calling her because that's her name, installed her adopted son as leader of the fleet, and less than two weeks after that, married him. All righty. Zheng Yi announced that she would marry her adopted son, and as I said, there had been rumors that there mm -hmm. was already sure. a kind of a, yeah. it, it wasn't a new situationship, if you will. It seems kind of unfair that they would kill you for extramarital affairs, and yet there were these rumors swirling about that they were having extramarital affairs. Mm, no, I can see what you're saying. Mm. Hey, I'm not judging. I'm just... It's not about the act. It's about the hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. that's fair. Yeah. Prove it. That's all I'm saying. Prove it. I can't prove it. No. Zheng Yi Sao commanded 1,800 ships in the South China Sea. An East India Company employee named Richard Glasspool was captured and held by the fleet for four months. 1,800 ships. That had to be like one of the largest navies of its day. Yeah, it was. Holy crap. So when this Richard Glasspool was captured in 1809, he estimated that there were 80,000 pirates under her command. Good Lord. Now just keep in mind... Blackbeard, who is often thought of as like, oh, the pirate, blah, blah. 300 pirates under his command. He had four ships. They were really nice ships. Yeah, oh, no, sure. really nice yeah. ships, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Zheng Yi Sao kept meticulous records and imposed more regulations on the pirates in her fleet, some of which were a different approach from her late husband's. These rules included... A pirate may not go ashore without permission. A first punishment for breaking this rule was to have one of your ears slit. And the second punishment was execution. Wow, that escalates quickly. Yeah. Captured goods were to be registered before being shared out, which I think is great business practice. And she also created the rule that an individual ship that captured a cargo was entitled to one-fifth of that cargo. Okay. And then the rest of it was to be split among the fleet. Okay. Now, consider that all of these ships, they, they see that one-fifth as being a great booty, mm. and they also get the Sharons from the other ships. So they're all really happy about this deal. Oh, I shouldn't say they all are. I'm sure there were disgruntled pirates. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everybody gets a piece. It's like a booty MLM. The Qing Dynasty Navy attempted to defeat the Red Flag Fleet at one point, and they were decimated in hours. Qing Shi offered mercy to members of that navy that survived if they agreed to join her fleet. Bum As a result, the Red Flag Fleet grew in size, and the Qing Dynasty lost a huge portion of its navy. Holy crap. Now, eventually, Zheng Ye Sao was defeated by the Portuguese Navy. They had previously suffered 
defeats to her twice, by the way. But three times a charm, I guess. And she decided to accept defeat in the coolest way possible. It's 1810 in April, and so she sailed her entire fleet, all flags flying, directly to authorities and demanded a pardon. Wow. Now, at this point, as I understand it, she gave parts of her fleet the option to kind of disband from her, Mm -hmm. but many of her ships came with her. Start their own pirating franchise. Sure, sure, sure. And gained the pardon on favorable terms. The pirates got to keep their plunder, but authorities took their boats and their weapons. So that's a pretty good deal for them. After all those years of plundering? Right. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I I would think. So at the age of 35, Zheng Yi Sao retired. Now, there are mixed details about the rest of her life after retirement. There are those that say she opened a gambling house and a brothel. Chung Po died at sea in 1822 at the age of 39. But Zheng Yi Sao died at 69 years old, a very wealthy woman. That's a good long life for somebody in those days, especially somebody that lived such a potentially volatile and violent lifestyle. Exactly. She's inspired many fictional pirates over the years, including the character Mistress Ching, one of the nine pirate lords in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Nice. Or is it Caribbean? I've heard it both ways. I got my information from Atlas Obscura, History Hit, History Heroines, and WorldHistory.org. What an amazing story that is. Before we wrap, wanted to uh, welcome the latest members to the Order of Freaks, the latest uh, patrons, if you will, Leah, Christina, and Haley. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate the support. The support. I liked it better the first way you said it. (laughs) (laughs) Support. If you want to join the Order of Freaks, become a patron on Patreon. Lots of benefits, depending upon what degree freak you want to become in the Order of Freaks. But stuff like ad-free episodes, Zoom calls, bonus episodes, and of course our undying gratitude. Go to the website, theboxofoddities.com, and the link's right there. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.